following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Hi, this is Bill McCutcheon, lead pastor at Hilton Head Presbyterian. For this week's sermon on a new gospel community, I am deeply indebted to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and Reverend Tim Keller. Their treatment of the text and outlines were the primary sources for this week's sermon. Well, that's where we are within this great letter to the Roman church. That Paul is saying, folks, when you have truly and honestly encountered God on his terms, not yours, on his terms, you will be changed. You can't help it. The effect of the gospel is that it will it will. It will, as the scripture says, transform your life. You've been conformed to this world, but he's saying now by the gospel penetrating into time and space, penetrating into your heart and making it alive, that you are going to be different and so different that it's noticeable to people around you. For so many of us, you work incredibly hard in your places of business and in your social lives and in the places where you are. You work very hard to mitigate and to minimize the effect of Christ on your life because you want to be accepted. What Paul is saying is, no, it's just the opposite. If you really encounter God on his terms, you are going to live it out in such a way that people are going to notice it about you. They're going to see that you're rejoicing. They're going to see that you're living in a particular way. It's no, the gospel is so much more than the do's and don'ts of the Christian life, but it is not less than that. That there is a moral compass. There is a, a right and a wrong. There is a manner in which we live. And Paul is saying, beginning in chapter 12, Now, therefore, based on all of this, present your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, for it is your act of spiritual worship. It is you saying, God, you are so worth it. You are of so much value. I am going to offer you my life on your terms. I am not going to negotiate with you. I am not going to barter with you. I am going to live according to the manner in which you have called me to live, no matter what the cost is to me, because God, I promise that whatever financial cost it is to me, whatever social cost it is to me, whatever reputation cost it is to me, whatever cost it is to me, it pales in comparison to the costliness of your love towards me in Christ. So I'm not going to play that game with you of, well, you know, God, If I do this, then I'm not going to have friends. If I do this, then I'm not going to get the promotion. It's going to be costly to me. Folks, we don't want to play the costly game with God. And too often we put a price tag on what we're willing to do beginning in chapter 12. God, I'm willing to follow you as long as I think the cost is reasonable. God, I'm willing to follow you as long as it doesn't cost me more than that level, that line in the sand that I've said, it's at this point, I can't do it anymore. That could truly be financial or that could be uh, relational, it could be emotional, whatever it is. But God is inviting you today, friends, into a family dynamic and relationship, into a community that says this is how life is to be. And it is freeing, and it is full, and it is glorious, and it is the best design, because it is God's design. 
So let's ask him now to bless his word to us, that we would be able to hear from him and not from me, and that he would teach us all together today. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would come by your spirit, and you would bless the reading, the hearing, the preaching of your word, and that we would all, with great humility, sit under it, that we would learn from it, be challenged by it. Father, be encouraged by it, to see the places where we are doing well, but also to expose the places, those hidden places, those non-negotiables that we've had, those vows that we've taken. Father, you'd expose those, and you would transform them by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. This is the word of the Lord given to us by Paul, by the power of the Spirit. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight, repay no no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. Last week we talked about this one body with many parts, each part having a unique giftedness. We didn't go through the list of gifts. It's not a complete and full list that Paul gives there uh, in the beginning of chapter 2. But he speaks of particular gifts that individuals have. And I would encourage you that if you don't know what your giftedness is, that you, you learn. There are uh, gift assessment tests that you can take. We can help you with that through the church. You can contact us and we'll help identify some of those. Uh, in that identifying of your gifts, you may find out that you have some strengths that maybe uh, you weren't aware of. I remember going through this recently with someone and they came and they, thought, they said, 
My whole life I thought this was my gift set, and what I'm realizing is this is my gift set. No wonder I'm kind of bumping around trying to serve out of this gift set when really this is how God has has gifted me and strengthened me. So he began to move and to serve in a different place. But you also might find out, as I was joking uh, with someone this week, she took a gift assessment test, and after taking it within the context of a group where her pastor was with her, uh, the pastor pulled her aside and said, we might need to talk. And she went, oh, no, I failed. And he said, no, you haven't failed. But what I noticed was on the mercy side, you scored two out of 100. That we probably need to, to see uh, that uh, God wants to work a little bit in your mercy side. on that. So a gift assessment is great because it's not a pass-fail, uh, but it does show you here's some great strengths that I have, but here are also some areas that I need to work on. You can't just say, hey, that's the way God made me. That, that, that doesn't cut it. You don't get to say, well, I just am not merciful. God didn't make me merciful. If you have a hard time with mercy, it probably means that you haven't spent enough time just beholding the beauty and the mercy of God in Christ towards you. You probably haven't been fully softened by the fact of how much mercy was required to save you. And so it helps you realize, okay, I need to spend some time over here and do that. Now, Paul moves from that in this picture uh, of the church as an as a organized, unified, healthy organism uh, that has different people from different backgrounds living together with unique gifts, but doing it as one entity. And he changes the language now, beginning in verse 9 and 10, and he begins to change the language into that of a family. And so what we're going to look at today briefly is this idea of being a gospel family together, a gospel community. And the way he begins is simply this. He writes in the Greek, sincere love. He doesn't actually have a verb in there. It says in your translation, most likely something like, let love be genuine. He just simply says, sincere love, folks. He's saying, hey, the basis of everything that we're talking about is a deep and profound and sincere, not hypocritical, not one that meanders left and right, but a sincere love. So that is at the root of these things. And he begins to build on that. And the first thing that we're going to see is this about our Christian family, our Christian community, that love is the foundation of everything else. That may go without saying, but it's important for us to go back to the basics that love is the foundation of everything else. We'll touch briefly, it goes, uh, it's very obvious that this gospel and this community life together and family pervades every area of our individual lives. And then finally, the source of our ability to live together in family is through Christ himself and what he's done. So first and quickly, Paul speaks. And it's interesting, just as a little aside, in the Greek, it's usually third-person plural. And so the best way to translate that is southern, y'all. All y'all, to be more precise. Those of you who are from another place, that's, that's good English. And that's what Paul's saying, because we live in an individualistic society that says, we think that he's talking to you just about you. You do this individually. No, he's saying this. Hey, y'all, all y'all, whole church, I want you all to be about this. I want these dynamics 
to be held individually, but I want them to be corporately held as well because this is about a family. And the reason that we know it's about a family and that love is the foundation of this is the first words that he uses there in verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Philostorge is the word that he uses. See, in, a, in English, we use the word love to say, I love ice cream and I love my wife. There's no differential in that. We, we use the word love, but in the Greek, they had four words for love. They had philo, brotherly or friendship love. Storge, which was familial love, it was a family love that you have. It was eros, which is the more erotic love of passionate love, physical. And agape, which was adopted more by the Christians to show a sacrificial love. Here Paul uses philo and storge together. And he says of philo, C.S. Lewis in his great book, The Four Loves, which I hope that you've read. He says the picture of philo, Philadelphia, phila is of two people standing next to one another facing a common objective and goal. Eros would be two people standing facing one another. Philo, brotherly love or friendship love, is two people, individuals, standing next to one another looking towards a common mission and a common goal. Well, that works obviously within the church where we have a common mission and a common goal and we stand together in friendship and in brotherly affection in that way. But he takes it farther, and this is where I'm going to spend the bulk of the time. He uses the word storge, which is family love. And this family love, I was listening to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preach on this, and it was wonderful to hear him just thunder away and talk. But he spoke of storge as being a non-discriminating love. That friends and lovers will say that they were made for uh, each other. That they sort of selected one another. Uh, that they chose one another in this way. But the special glory of Storge is that it unites those who most emphatically, as he said, and even comically, are not made for each other. Storge exists between people who, if they had not found themselves in the same household or community, would have, made, would have had nothing to do with each other. See, you didn't get to choose your family. You were born into it or adopted into it or brought into it. And what you find within a family is there is a storge love. There is a love that is at sometimes comical because these different people are brought together, children with their parents. Storge love is that love if you have ever had a child or held your child for the first time. That you look at that child and that storge. You're connected for the rest of your life. You're connected and you, have, you know nothing about this child. Except that it's family and that it's yours. And for the rest of the time, the world could be against your kids. The world could be against your parents. But you look and you go, but that's my family. That's my family. There is a deep and a profound connection now, for some of you, when I speak of family, it brings back hurt and wounds. It brings back a place not of safety, but a place of violation, of brokenness. And so this may be difficult for you to understand, or maybe when you even talk about the family of God and your experience within the church has been one of woundedness and brokenness and violation. My hope through this is that the beautiful picture of what we are together as a family can be restored to you and redeemed. 
Tim Keller, when he was teaching on this, spoke of storge love having three dynamics. He said storge love is non-selective, that storge love has non-privacy, and that it is non-safety, three nons. I've already mentioned the non-selective part, that storge love uh, brings us together and we find a commonality not on things that we would determine in and of ourselves. We don't determine that within our families, nor do we determine that within the church. For what you find within this body of Christ is people brought together by God with vast differences. And unlike a social club or organization where uh, you get to determine the entrance exam and you get to say whether it's based on skin color or based on socioeconomic uh, power, uh, on education, on whatever it is, on gender, but in the church, we're bound together by God with people who we wouldn't normally be together with. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. And so my hope over time is that we would see our diversity within our church grow, that we would be even more non-selective, if you would, in that way. And that today, that anybody and everybody could walk in the doors of this church and through simple profession of faith in Jesus Christ would become our family member even more so than our blood. You realize that. You are more connected to the people in this room who profess Christ than you are even to your blood. For there is the possibility that within your bloodline, some may not accept Christ. And so that relationship will be broken in eternity. But the relationship within Christ will be for all eternity. This family stays together forever. You realize that, right? So it might be good for us to start practicing that now. Start figuring it out now. So there's a non-selectivity in this. You find that when you're with other brothers and sisters in Christ, that you're with them and you're drawn to them and you say, I may be from a different class or I may be from a different, uh, a different uh, education background or a racial background, but you're drawn to a commonality. When I was in uh, the townships in, in South Africa, of being there with brothers and sisters who I couldn't understand their speech, but I was drawn to them and found that they were my family and I would have defended them and them me based on no commonality at all other than Christ. So there's a non-selectiveness to this love that we have. But there's also a non-privacy that you see most of us work very hard to be private people. But what we find within this loving family relationship that we have within the church, that there's no privacy. And what that means is this. If the Christians around you are your brothers and sisters, then who you're dating and who you're spending your money and your life on, what you're doing in your private world, it matters because they're family. It matters what my family does. It matters what Lisa does. It matters to me what my boys do. It matters to them what I do because we're family. And so within that, there's no privacy. There is actually a compulsion and a requirement to speak into the life of a family member when you see them acting out of accord with the love of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Not to just sit and judge and go, can you believe that? Can you see what they're doing over there? And they call 
themselves a Christian. I promise you, Lisa and I, when we consider parenting our boys, we don't sit on the couch and go, can you believe they call themselves a McCutcheon? Doing those things upstairs and in private and with their friends out on Friday night. Can you believe that they are a McCutcheon with that kind of behavior? Good grief. I'm just not going to talk to them anymore. I'm not going to hang out with them anymore. I'm just going to disassociate myself with them. No, you know what I do as a parent? I go into the bedroom and I open the door and I say, hey, we're going to talk. And what I find within the passion of a family relationship is when I see evil taking place and taking root within the life of a family member, it angers me, not at the family member, but I am brokenhearted and say, I'm going to fight for you even if you're not willing to fight for you. I'm willing to speak truth to you because that's what Christians do. Family members speak truth to one another, right? Right? Dysfunctional families don't. But functioning, healthy families, if there is a pink elephant in the room, guess what you're going to acknowledge? The pink elephant. But we get really good at going, I don't see an elephant. And I don't see that big pile of stuff that he left. And I don't, under, I don't know that smell. And I'm just going to sort of skirt around. And it's southern. I'm going to use another southern term for you. We hem and haw. We hem and haw around and we move and we meander and we have an incredibly choreographed dance. But we're not honest. The family is honest. And it says, I love you enough to invade your privacy. To say to you, this is going on and I see it and I love you. See, dating is all about concealing. You want to look good so that you can get married. Marriage is all about revealing, right? (laughs) So sort of two systems bumping into each other. But all of a sudden on the honeymoon you realize, you never told me you did that at night. What's that noise? Where did that come from? Because you've been concealing it. It's all because you want to get married. But now in marriage and in family, there's no hiding it. It's just there. It's the same way here. We live together with no privacy. And for some of you, you're right now shutting me down. Honestly, you work hard to be private people. Incredibly hard. You like your privacy and you like your world and you don't mind me preaching but you sure don't want me meddling and you sure don't want the elder calling you and going into your home as a shepherd elder and asking you what's going on in your marriage or how are you doing with your kids and the teenagers don't want Tim asking them what's really going on. We want our privacy but folks, storge, love in a family doesn't have privacy and so we've got to learn to live together in this way to draw it out. And storge love within a family also doesn't have safety. It's risky and painful to love in the way that God has called us to love. Because you see, C.S. Lewis put it this way. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, give it to no one. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in its casket of selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, and motionless, it will change. It will not become broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. The only alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. 
the only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the perturbations of love is hell. It's risky to love. You can get hurt. Someone can reject you. And so, for so many, we isolate, with even within the family. But folks, what Paul is talking about here is that when you understand what has taken place in the gospel to you, in that incredible cosmic transaction, it frees you to begin to live life together differently than the world would. You live life openly with one another and your family, and you defend one another. Think about the characteristics of love, and I'm jumping off my outline for a second. But within a family, think about Paul writing to the Corinthian church. And he said, love believes the best. That when a family member does something wrong, instead of assassinating them and assuming the worst... Assuming that they're against you, assuming that they don't care about you, assuming that they did it intentionally. Love believes the best. Love says, I know them and I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt until I'm proven wrong. But for so many of us, we assassinate first and ask for a response and whether or not it convinces us is up to us. Paul's saying that's not how families work. Families believe the best. Families love well, for love is patient and kind. Love doesn't seek its own. Love is the foundation of how we relate to one another and a family. And so for our family here, this gospel-created family here, with people who you wouldn't normally have chosen to be in a family with, but God chose for you, For a purpose, by the way, maybe to expose something in you or maybe to expose something in them, maybe to bring great joy and glory. But he brought us together for a purpose. And he says, now love each other as a family in that way. Isn't that awesome? That would really help how we deal with each other. Just that simple love believes the best. Do you believe the best about me? And you believe the best about my intentions towards you. And I believe the best of you. And so when we have something go wrong, when you don't return a phone call, when I don't return an email, when I fail to do something for you, when you fail to do something for me, instead of us breaking apart, we draw together by saying, now I know this person, they're my family member, I know they have my best interest in mind, and so I'm going to find out what's going on, and I'm not going to write some narrative out there based on all this stuff that I'm not sure about, but I'm just going to proceed with love, just like I would my wife, just like I would with my sons, just like I would in any family. I'm going to pursue you in that way. And so we're not going to break apart. We're not going to break apart over silly and foolish things. Do you know how many times people have said and threatened that they're going to leave the church or they're angry with me and they're all of this and if I can just get them to sit down with me face to face and not text me and not write emails to me and not leave voicemails but to sit down and so as a family member we just look at each other and I can say to them I am sorry that I wounded you. That was not my intent. But I am deeply sorry that I did and I want to work this out. Do you know how few times that ends with them leaving 
Folks, we're a family. We live together in this way. Storge, love, this non-private, non-selective, non-safe love. And the way that we do it, and I'm jumping over a lot of stuff because the way that we live together is a unique way, and I will touch on it real quickly. It touches how we relate to each other in joy and in sadness, which is easier to rejoice with those who are rejoicing or to mourn with those who are mourning? The answer actually is mourn with those who are mourning. Because it's either easier to associate with somebody who is hurt and mournful than it is to rejoice with somebody who's rejoicing when your house didn't sell, when you aren't getting married and they are, when you're not able to have a child and they seem to be fertile myrtle, when you... Uh, want uh, to have your spouse still there and they still have their spouse. When they have things and you don't have things, when they won the lottery and you're in bankruptcy, it is harder to rejoice with those who rejoice, not to mourn with those who mourn. I think that's why Paul put it first. He said, start here. He said, you see how we relate to one another, that we don't want vengeance on one another, but we're going to honor each other deeply, that we're going to live in harmony with one another, that we're going to look after the needs of others, that we're not going to be, and there's that great word in verse 16, we're not going to be haughty. That's prideful. That book that I mentioned to you last week, it was sold out. We have plenty of copies, I think, don't we? A few. First service has beaten you guys to it. So you have to come to the first service uh, or order it. Uh, The name is, what was the... The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, great little book by Tim Keller, and it really shows how haughtiness and pride undermines the family relationship, it undermines the gospel community, it undermines our very hearts. And so Paul is saying here, we want to live in harmony with one another, and as far as it depends upon you, incredibly important little phrase there, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with one another. Be in shalom with one another as far as it depends upon you. Do you know what that means? It means you can't control the other person, but you can control you. And so what you can do is continually offer that olive branch, that you can bless instead of curse, that you can care for your enemy, that you can turn the other cheek, that you can do all of these things to the other person, whether they reject it or receive it, it doesn't matter to you. As far as it depends upon you, live at peace with one another. That's incredibly freeing too. Because then at the end of the day, when a brother or sister in Christ comes to you and says, hey, how are things going with so-and-so? You can say, I've tried. I really have tried. And I feel that my conscience is clear before God that I've done what I need to do. Now, I'm not going to withhold. I'm not going to write them off. But I've tried. That's a good place. It's incredibly freeing within that. So Paul goes through this incredible list. He talks about justice and enemies and suffering and prayer life. So in a nutshell, and we need to wrap up quickly, in a nutshell, here's what it says. All of life is touched by the gospel. Every area of our life together is touched by the gospel. And then the final thing, how is Christ then the source of this? And I'm going to have to touch on it really quickly. How is Christ the source of this Christian community, this Christian family base? I did a little research and looking at some of the families within the Bible and wanted to see, well, if he's talking about a biblical family, let's look at some of the biblical families. So I started at the beginning. Adam and Eve. Oh, well, that didn't work well. 
Had a son kill another son, murdered right there in it. Well, Noah, that was a pretty good redemptive story. Oh, no, Noah's sons got drunk, or Noah got drunk, and his sons did some things, and uh, no, that's not a good story either. Oh, well, Joseph has to be a good story. Oh, well, no, his father showed favoritism to him and alienated him from his brothers. His brothers hated him so much that they wanted to murder him, threw him into prison and sold him as a slave. Okay, that one didn't work really well. Well, let's move to the New Testament. So, oh, James and John, the sons of thunder. Oh, well, they're so arrogant that they thought that they should go to the front of the line and everything. Well, Luke 15 talks about a family, but oh, that's an older brother and a younger brother. Neither of them could get along. In the family, and even Christ's own family was a mess because his brothers came and said, Hey, you got to come home. And he said, Who's my mother and father? Who are my brothers and sisters? Their family was a mess. And you're like, Okay, how do we do this? How then, if all the biblical families seem to be a mess, David, you go, Oh, well, he pursued God's heart, and his son, oh, Absalom, don't even bring him up. I mean, it's just a mess. Well, how then can all of this be brought together? How can we? who are from these gene pools, who are from this lineage, how can we be brought together to love as a family? And the answer comes in Hebrews chapter 12, where it said that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, a newer relationship with God, and that his shed blood speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel, which cried out for justice. You see, what God is saying to us is simply this. Jesus came to his own and his family, and he was rejected by them. He was betrayed, and he was handed over to death by his brothers. And he, his blood, like Abel's blood, was spilled out on the ground, that he was killed. One more seeming testimony to the failure of the human family. But there's a difference. Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He did it voluntarily. He did it as our substitute. He came to pay the penalty for our failures to love one another. All of our selfishness, all of our pride, all of our whatever it is. He came to pay the penalty for all of that through his spilled blood. That what this means is that Jesus is the true and sweet and ultimate able that who through his innocent blood which was shed, his blood cries not for condemnation, but for acquittal. His blood cries out not for justice, but for grace. And so what we see in this, when we understand this, is God is saying to us, I have paid an incredible price to bring you into a family, a different, renewed kind of family where you can love from a different power source, where you have a different model of love. I'm a different father than you've ever experienced. I am a father who wanted you to be my son or daughter so much that I crushed my only son, that I poured out his blood on the ground, and it cries out for your acceptance into this family, and that I'm that kind of father to you. I'm that kind of lover of your soul. I am that kind of pursuing parent who will pursue you in this way. And when you see what he did, and when you see what my son did on your behalf, and you see the things that I did in order to bring you into this family, that will free you up to love your enemies. That will free you to love one another, and to think the best of one another, and to forgive one another, and to care for one another, but only when you see the costliness of the love that God had for you in Christ. Does that make sense? 
We are trying to plug alkaline batteries into our lives and power them when what they need is a power source that is cosmic in nature. You will not be able to live as a Storge family here with an alkaline battery of your own will and of your own choice and your own self-determination. It can only happen when you are transformed by the love of a father in you who says, you are mine. I purchased you. And it was incredibly costly. And now you can love the ordinary people in your life and the uncool and the folks who are on the margin and the folks who are different than you because I loved you first. Does that make sense? So folks, let's keep coming back there and see what happens and how it can change us. Now we've run over a bit and so I'm going to quick... um, Henry, would you hand me one of those? Just one. I'll go ahead and invite the team to come on up. And I think probably the best way to do this, um, I've given you a little inventory. And you love inventories, I know. Because you like self-assessment. And what this is, is me taking chapter 12 and the different thoughts of living sacrifice and living together as one body and living as one family and how we relate to one another. And it's taking the language that says, do not be conformed by the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I've written out on both sides of this just some lists and some ideas, some things that would mark maybe a conformed life, and then some marks of things that would show a transformed life. And so, Matt, what do you think? Should we hand them out or just put them at the back? Hand them out? What? In the back. In the back. All right. So what I'm going to ask you to do, we're going to take those out into the back. Tim, would you go ahead and take those back in the back? I'd ask you to take one, please. And if your spouse isn't here, for sure take one. <laughs> You're going to want them to take this. No. I really just want you to look and to see where God may be doing some work and where God may need to do some work in your life. And you can do it with someone who you know loves you as a family member who has your best interest in mind. So, Because you have blind spots, and I do too. And so um, take this this week and uh, look at it, and hopefully it will be an encouragement to you. But let's pray and then stand and sing our closing song together.